0: You'll join me in prayer. Our Lord, we give you praise and thanks again for a new day, a gift from you. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who we study all the time in this study. It's our goal, Lord, to know Christ better, to see his examples, his types, the pointing to him. He is all we need, and we need to focus on that, help our minds to be calm, to hear and to apply this word to our lives. May we see, Lord, what you have for us in it, and may it bring you glory in our lives. We pray for Catherine now. Will you use her and strengthen her through this lesson? In Jesus' name. The title of the lesson is The Good Serpent. That almost seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That's the name of our lesson today. And I told you I would be giving you an Adrianism, you know, from Adrian Rogers every week so here's the next one when you take a stand for truth when you take a stand for truth you're going to have a head-on collision with error and that is so true in our world today you take a stand for truth and boy you're going to have a collision course with falsehood and i mean they're they're trying to silence us today aren't they Alright, so that's the Adrianism, that's from Adrian Rogers, he's with the Lord, but he's still on the radio, and uh, I heard he had a wonderful message today, On I didn't hear it, but on Christ typology, isn't that appropriate, <laughs> since that's what we're studying. Would you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, as hard as I tried to cover an entire chapter I was unsuccessful because the Lord led me in a different direction, plus I only had one week. (laughs) Oh, you have no idea how hard this week was to put this together so quickly. Here it is. We're going to only be looking at verses 1 to 13, but they are powerful. And they are going to also take us to other books of the Bible. So have your nimble fingers ready to flip over to other books, especially Numbers. The book of Numbers. (laughs) All right, let me read the passage since it is only 13 verses long, starting at verse 1 of chapter 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, now if you notice, he had just said, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? So the Lord is answering that question. He says unto Moses, see... I have made thee a god to Pharaoh. And my husband read that and he said, what does that mean? And I said, well, now you know why it takes me so long to study because I had to research that for about five hours. Moses was made a god. That's what it says. I have made thee a god to Pharaoh. And Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee. And Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh that he send the children of Israel out of his land. Notice there's nothing about the three days journey, is there? Just out of the land. Verse 3, God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, so did they. And Moses was fourscore years old, he was 80, and Aaron fourscore and three years old, 83, when they spake unto Pharaoh. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments, for they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and he hardened, that wouldn't be Aaron, that would be the Lord, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. The Lord God, Yahweh, has given the world, as he did long ago with Pharaoh of Egypt, a prolonged opportunity to surrender to him, to his lordship. Like Pharaoh, However, the world of evil men and seducers and deceivers has only managed to wax worse and worse. In general, mankind increasingly hardens its heart against his creator. Despite the manifestation of his person throughout his creation, The heavens declare the glory of God. How do you know there's a God? Well, look around the world. Just look at the beauty of nature. Look at life. It's so obvious. Isn't it obvious? I mean, I have bracelets on my hand. Isn't it obvious somebody made them? It's like, duh. (laughs) So man, you know, he hardens his heart despite the manifestation of God in his creation, his written word, his prophets, his own people, the incarnation of the living word. We have the written word, the Bible. We have the, the, the evidence of, of the living word, Christ himself and his resurrection from the dead. And we have God's many judgment warnings and so many other things. And yet no matter how much he gives man, how much evidence or how intense or widespread the rebellion is and is getting. We live in perilous times. No matter how bad it gets, the long conflict of history is going to end. I have good news for you. It is going to end as it ended in ancient Egypt with the absolute victory of Yahweh over Satan. The full redemption of Israel, full, she is not yet fully redeemed, and the destruction of all The anti-God armies of this world and the false prophets. Those armies, as was true of Pharaoh's army, will be in the end, they will be engaged in a murderous pursuit of Israel. This is called the Battle of Armageddon. They will have her hemmed in, just like Pharaoh had Israel hemmed in between a rock and a red sea, (laughs) Israel will be hemmed in and it will look like finally she's going to be annihilated by the forces of the Antichrist when sudden destruction comes upon all of them. This time, though, this is yet future, a sea will not split, but the sky will open and the Son of Man will will appear and just with the what spoken word of his mouth this time all of the the forces Egypt's you know Egypt pictures the world so when I say Egypt a lot of times I'm speaking of the world Egypt's antichrist forces will not be drowned by the Red Sea this next time they will be destroyed by the royal sun the entire record of Israel's physical redemption from Egypt what we call the exodus is, I want you to see this, this whole story, this whole account, which we begin today, really, the beginning of the Exodus, is a prophetic picture. It is a type of her spiritual redemption at the time of the glorious return of Christ at his second coming, when finally Israel will truly be emancipated from her burdens and her bondage here in Egypt. So do you get that big overall picture? The exodus is her physical deliverance, and it's all a picture of the end when she will finally be spiritually delivered. Now, in Exodus 7, verses 1 to 7, we find somewhat of a review of Moses' God-given commission. In his very characteristic patience, the Lord did not get angry when Moses questioned how it would be that Pharaoh would listen to him. You know, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. I'm not pure. I'm not clean. How is he going to listen to me when even the Israelites themselves were now against him for having brought greater affliction upon them than they had previous to his arrival. I mean, now they had to make bricks, make the same quota, and add straw. You know, go get the straw. Well, what Moses then heard next, after he said that, how is he going to listen to me? What he heard next was absolutely incredible. Amazing. Because he was told by God that he was to stand before the Egyptian monarch... Pharaoh as a God. Now, what would you think if God said that to you? (laughs) It's pretty shocking, isn't it? In other words, Moses was to represent God to Pharaoh. The Lord here was anointing Moses with his own divine authority. In effect, Moses was going to rule over Pharaoh. He would be the one, and we'll see this from now on, Moses is going to be the one who issues commands to Pharaoh, such as, let my people go. Moses is going to control things when Pharaoh seems to concede, or he does concede, you know, okay, I can't stand these flies, I'll let you go. (laughs) And then as soon as Moses gets rid of the flies, actually it's God working through Moses, but then what happens? Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, no, I won't let you go. So Moses would also punish Pharaoh when he would pull back on his his agreements. Pharaoh would be forced to make all of his appeals to Moses. Every time he wanted to pull back on the plagues, he'd have to appeal to Moses. Moses. And also, Moses would be like a god in that he was given his own prophet, one who spoke for him. Why was that? Well, that was because his, of his, oh, Lord, I'm slow of speech excuse. So he has someone who's going to speak for him. And who is that prophet who will speak for Moses? His older brother, Aaron. As Moses was not to speak or act on his own without waiting on God, You know, God would speak to him, and then if he had something to say, he'd say it to Aaron. But he was always to wait on God, not to speak or act without God's uh, advice and everything. Neither was Aaron to act on his own. He was not to take the initiative on anything. He was to get his instructions from Moses. Well, regardless of the outcome of the command of God that they had previously delivered to Pharaoh back in chapter 5, verse 1, and that didn't come out too good, did it? That didn't turn out so well. But despite that, they were told that they needed to again go before the king to demand that he let the children of Israel go out of his land. And as I mentioned, there's no mention of just three days. Just let us go out of your land. They were not, God tells them, they're not to expect Pharaoh to obey that command. He's not going to heed. He is not going to let Israel go because he had already shown forth his callous heart with his denial of the lesser request, which was that three-day journey into the wilderness to worship God. And he had also shown his callous heart with his uh, added workload on on the Hebrews. The Lord was going to allow uh, Pharaoh to give himself over to his own evil choices. Pharaoh, like all of us, had free will. He chose not to obey God. He chose not to even know who he is. He didn't care who God was. He made his own choices. So Pharaoh is giving him over. I mean, God is giving him over to his own, you know, reprobate mind, as it says in Romans chapter one, to his own choices. But in his great mercy, God still continued to supply the man with an abundant supply of signs and wonders. In verse 3, it says that. Pharaoh had no excuse. You know, one day when he stands before the great white throne judgment, he has absolutely nothing, either does anybody who stands before that throne judgment, no excuse because he had more than ample opportunities to believe and to submit to the will of God. Being omniscient, of course, you know, God knows everything. That's what omniscient means. God knew that Pharaoh would not believe and submit. He knew that ahead of time. He knew also that it would take his own mighty hand of righteous judgment laid very heavily on Egypt in order to set his people free. And in doing all this, everything he did in those 10 plagues, in doing all of that, the Egyptians would know <laughs> what That he is the Lord. That's in verse 5. So regardless of Pharaoh's disinterest in Yahweh Elohim, he and Egypt would learn the hard way who he is. Not with saving faith, but they would learn most of them, I should say would learn the hard way way that he is God. The signs and the wonders he presented through his own rods. Who were God's rods? Moses and Aaron. Those were his rods. Um, Through his signs and wonders and using his rods, those would serve as a powerful invitation. Think of the judgments on Egypt as an invitation An evangelistic invitation to everyone. Pharaoh, the Egyptians, even the Hebrews, probably most of whom were not saved, really genuinely saved. Many of them had turned to idol worship. So his judgments were going to be an invitation to come to him. Look who I am. Look how powerful I am. Come to me in simple faith. And some did. Some did, and we know this because those leaving at the end, finally, in the Exodus, were a mixed multitude. What does that mean? There were not only Hebrews, there were Egyptians as well who left with them in the Exodus. That's in 1238. So yes, some Egyptians, I don't know how many, were saved. And the same is going to be true in the tribulation. You do know that, right? The greatest revival this world will ever see will be during the seven years of tribulation after the removal of the church. Many tens of thousands, millions of people will come to believe in the Lord during the course of the great signs and wonders performed Not only by his two mighty witnesses, he is again going to have two mighty witnesses, two rods, isn't he? In the end times, like Moses and Aaron, he's going to have two mighty witnesses. Um, Many people will be saved through them. Many will be saved through the powerful preaching of 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Just like the Apostle Paul, can you imagine multiplying Paul times 144,000? And no, they're not the Jehovah's Witnesses. (laughs) They come from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are Jews who are going to be on fire for the Lord. And they're going to be witnesses to the Gentiles of the world. Like they should have been all along, right, Israel? And um, also many are going to come by way of those seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. You see, God uses judgments also as an evangelistic tool to get people's attention. Well, the pair of octogenarian brothers, (laughs) 80-year-old brothers, uh, were further told that the king was going to ask them, now this next time you go before him, he's going to ask you to show him a miracle. That reminds me of Herod Antipas. Remember when Pilate tried to get rid of Jesus at the trial and he sent him to Herod Antipas and all Herod Antipas wanted to to talk about was a miracle? Show me a miracle. Isn't that pathetic? Jesus wouldn't even speak a word, not one word to Herod. Why? Did he really want to believe in him? Did he really want to know God? Absolutely not. And he had cut off John the Baptist's head. Anyway, uh, Pharaoh, why would he want to ask for a miracle? Well, likely, you know, he has his taskmasters and his spies all over uh, Egypt. So he, you know, he had heard about the miracles wrought by Aaron before Israel's leaders, the elders. And so he was curious. He wanted to see one for himself. And evidently... He had uh, pre-planned to demonstrate how his wise men and his sorcerers and his magicians, by their enchantments to Egypt's gods with a small g, they could duplicate. He was confident that they would be able to duplicate whatever Moses and Aaron might show him. Um, And I say that he probably pre-planned that because... uh, They were readily available. They were right there. As soon as he calls them in, they all come. So the king was confident that the power of Egypt's gods was going to belittle the power of the God of the Hebrews. Right? He was a puny God because his people are all slaves. So he's very confident that he's going to really show up their God. Well, Exodus 8 through 13 contains the record of the first Miracle contest here in this whole Exodus um, uh, struggle is what it really is. It's it's a contest. It's no struggle because we know who wins easily. But the real question in this contest, which is between God and Satan, ultimately, it's not between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron. It's not between the magicians and and Aaron's rod. You know, it's none of that. Ultimately, it's a it's the contest of the ages, between good and evil, between God and Satan. So the real question at stake here in this whole Exodus struggle is who is the sovereign of the universe? Yes, very good. You answered it correctly. (laughs) Good, Judy. God. In the uh, miracle of this passage about the rod to the serpent, that miracle, in the 10 plague miracles which follow, and the miracle of the Red Sea crossing, God is going to reveal the answer to that question. Who is the sovereign of the universe? He is. He is definitely. As always, Satan can prove to be no match. No match for his own creator. You know, Satan is a creature. He was created by God as lucifer he is not the brother of jesus like the mormons teach no the one who created him is christ well the lord instructed aaron to cast down his rod before the king and he told him in advance that it would become a serpent that probably didn't surprise him because they'd already done that miracle before the elders of israel now, as I said, this was similar to the rod serpent miracle that not only Moses experienced at Sinai before the, the burning bush. Remember when God told him to, sh- to cast down his shepherd's staff? Okay, so it's similar to that miracle. And it's also similar to the miracle that was performed before Israel's elders back in chapter 4. But there are also some slight differences, some you cannot see in the English, okay? At Sinai, Moses' rod was used. And what was his rod? A shepherd's staff. What was he out there doing? Tending to the sheep. By the way, this is a real authentic shepherd's staff that my husband brought back from Crete, Greece, for me. Okay, so at the burning bush, it was Moses' rod. Before Pharaoh, it was Aaron's rod. Another difference, the ground upon which Aaron cast down his rod was not holy ground, was it? (laughs) It was probably there in Pharaoh's palace. Another difference, we don't see, like I said, in English translations, but in Hebrew, there is a different word for serpent used in each of the different accounts Moses's and Aaron's. When Moses's rod became a serpent during the burning bush episode, the Hebrew word for serpent that is used is nachash. I think I mentioned that to you when we studied it. That is the very same word used of the serpent. In the Garden of Eden, which Satan possessed in order to deceive Eve. And that serpent was cursed, remember, above any other creature. And that serpent, a serpent, a serpent, when you see a snake, (laughs) it has become a symbol, right, of the enmity between the devil and Christ, and between the followers of the devil and the followers of Christ. It's a symbol. Now, when God performed the rod uh, to Nechash miracle for Moses, who, remember, when it became a snake, he was told to pick it up by what? By the tail, which is not wise. Uh, (laughs) And when that same miracle was performed before Israel's elders, It was done in order to confirm the word of God. That was the purpose. Moses was having all the doubts, so God showed him a miracle to confirm the word, the message that he was to deliver, right? To confirm the word. That's what they were doing with the elders. It was to confirm that their message was indeed from God. It was also used to demonstrate to those who knew the origin of sin the Lord's power over Satan. Now, did the Egyptians know the the origin of sin? No, they didn't. Because it was passed down among the Hebrews, right? And and Moses hadn't written Genesis yet. (laughs) So they didn't know the origin because they had turned on God. I mean, they could have known it. If they had, if the, is well, that's another lesson right there. But anyhow, they didn't know the origin of sin. So, uh, but the Hebrews, Moses and the elders would understand that when he picked up that serpent by the tail, the most dangerous part, it was showing the Lord's power over Satan. They would get that message. Now, when Aaron's rod became a serpent in um, verse 10 of our lesson here, The word is not nachash. It is tanin. We don't have the board to write on, but it's T-A-N-N-I-N. And the very first use of that word in the scripture is in the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis 121. If you want to look at it, the taninim, that's plural, tanin, taninim, when you add an I-M, it makes it plural. They were the very first first living creature god ever made according to the bible on creation day five when he filled the waters of the earth with creatures the very first thing he created was the taninum and in the king james it's translated as great whales but included in the meaning we know this because it's Translated elsewhere in the Bible, many places, that word includes all the larger marine creatures, some of which lived on both land and sea or waters, uh, such as giant dinosaurs and such as uh, some kinds of serpents and crocodiles. The original taninim like everything else God created were pronounced what? Good. Even in that same verse where the word first appears, Genesis 121, it says they were good. These were good serpents. <laughs> good crocodiles, good whales, or however you want to interpret, it. good dinosaurs. You know, the original dinosaurs didn't go around like Jurassic Park. <laughs> Now, uh, witnessing the, um, God's sign miracle performed by Aaron's rod, because when he cast it down, it turned into what? A tanim, a serpent. Some even say it turned into a crocodile. I won't go there, although that is possible, but let's say serpent, because that's what they decided to interpret it here in the scripture, and they're probably smarter than me, the ones who translated. So, um, When when Pharaoh saw that, he immediately sent for his repertoire of false prophets. (laughs) And they were standing right outside the door. And each one of them had their magic wand in their hand. (laughs) Isn't that convenient? They were ready. He had this all pre-planned. So in come his wise men and his magicians and his sorcerers. That's all plural, isn't it? So there's got to be at least six. I would assume there's more than that. You know, six would be just two wise men, two sorcerers, two magicians, but in they come and uh, they carry their rods and after their enchantments, they cast down their rods and they became serpents. Um, It says in verse 12, now many people and somebody even last week asked me this, "How how Pharaoh's magicians and his sorcerers could imitate God's miracle. Don't you want to know? How did they do that? Did they possess supernatural powers? Or is there another explanation for what took place? Well, the Bible does not definitively tell us. It doesn't give us a conclusive answer, so I can be dogmatic about this, but we do have some strong clues. For example, the words magicians, sorcerers, and enchantments, is that not a clue? <laughs> that tells us, along with everything else we know about ancient Egypt, that these men were involved in occultic practices, occultic deceptive practices. The word sorcery, and that was one of the homework questions, is always used in the scripture in reference to evil or deceptive practices, demonic or deceptive practices. You know, sorcery in Greek comes from the word for pharmacy, pharmakia, and it includes drugs, the use of drugs. Now, there are numerous ancient paintings, and you can go online and look these up. I did. I was scrolling through all these paintings, you know, from ancient Egypt, and these carvings and written texts that portray snakes as affiliated with Egypt's ma- magicians and her pharaohs and her um, priests and, and snake charmers. Even the rods, if you look at those pictures, the rods that they hold in their hands, I mean, you know how they're all standing sideways like this. <laughs> but the rods that they hold in their hands are serpents, serpent staffs. They look just like a serpent. They even have the head curled at the top. Um, you know the uh, sculptured figures on the golden caskets of Egypt's pharaohs, like when they found King Tut. You know they have the carving of the man on the outside of the casket, and uh, out of the the uh, they have a, a snake coming out from the forehead of that carved pharaoh. An image of an enraged female cobra. Bad enough to be a male cobra, but a female who's mad, you know, (laughs) it's not good. But that image was carved on the front of the royal crowns of Egypt's pharaohs. Um, Because the Egyptians believed that the serpent was charged with deity. The cobra was actually a symbol of pharaoh's deity and his power. Snakes were often used in charming ceremonies and in other practices, which made Egypt's magicians and sorcerers very familiar and quite adept at handling snakes. (laughs) They knew this little trick, and um, this still goes on in the world today. They knew how to apply, I happen to have my own cobra here, (laughs) It's really scary, isn't it? (laughs) Um, But they knew how to apply just perfectly um, pressure at the nape of the neck of the cobra. Maybe the nape is up here. I'm not sure where. Maybe there. Um, They could apply that pressure in a certain way so that the cobra would become as stiff as a rod. And then when that pressure was released from the neck and that rigid snake was cast hard on the ground it would come out of its catatonic state and it would be a squirming snake on the floor one of the best snakes to use in that trick happens to be yet to this day the Egyptian cobra here's another hint we know we know that only Elohim can create life That's what God is called in the creation chapters of Genesis, Elohim. I am is what kind of an ending? It's like adding an S to a word. So Elohim, even though he's God, one God, he's three persons. Um, Only he can create life. He alone is the source of all life. Now, Satan can imitate miracles. He is the great deceiver. But he cannot create life. Now, we all need to be very wise and discerning when it comes to this idea of thinking that all miracles are from God. Are all miracles from God? No. No, they aren't. There were other Egyptian magicians um, back in Joseph's day. Remember when Pharaoh had a dream? There were Egyptians and magicians and sorcerers in in Babylon during Daniel's d- excuse me <coughs> day. They were all engaged in occultic practices. There have always been these kind of people throughout human history. Uh, but we find in the scripture that they prove themselves to be absolutely, totally impotent when it comes to rightly interpreting god's revelation weren't they all just completely helpless to interpret any of god's dreams yes Yes. they don't they you know they try even satan tries to interpret scripture and he does it wrong and he purposely deceives people about it we know that during the great the the great tribulation the last three and a half years of the tribulation um that the Antichrist, Satan is going to imitate many, many miracles in that period of time by which he will be able to deceive the world into worshiping the Antichrist. You know, that image that is set up in the Holy of Holies of the temple, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did years ago, that was a type of what will happen and he'll even make it look like he can speak. Satan has a lot of power. And he can imitate a lot of things. A twofold test regarding the authenticity of a miracle is, does it conflict with the truths and the principles and the prohibitions of the word of God? And number two, who gets the glory in a miracle? Always ask yourself that. Does God get the glory with that miracle? Or could someone else be getting the glory with that miracle? Well, I have a question for you. This is a trivia question. We happen to know the name of two of these magicians. Do you know that? Who would like to tell me the name of two of Pharaoh's magi- Probably the chief magicians or sorcerers. Who knows? You will get an extra piece of cake. <laughs> or <an laughs> whatever you want. No, not a... You'll get a free Daniel book. Anybody in here? Free Daniel book. Oh! I said aladdin. Uh, aladdin you got it <laughs> <Aladdin>. <laughs> who you're going into our greek mythology my dear <laughs> that's the one with the snap that's a good guess. no it's in the bible their names are in the bible in the new testament oh paul told it paul paul you got it you get a free daniel book <laughs> Yes. Wow, you are smart. That is wonderful. Janus and Jambres. Does that sound familiar? That's, Paul told us that 2 Timothy 3.8. As I said, they were probably the chief magicians of Pharaoh in this day, you know, when the serpent miracle was performed. Paul said that they opposed Moses by resisting the truth of God with their corrupt minds. Why did they have corrupt minds? Well, because they were involved in occultic practices. They were cunning wizards who engaged in the art of ledger domain. Now, here's another free Daniel book. If anybody can tell me what ledger domain is. Going once, ledger domain. Going twice. Ledger domain, now you're going to learn a new vocabulary word is the art of deceiving the eye by sleight of hand. Okay. They were experts at ledger domain. People that do card tricks and the cups as they swirl the cups around. That's called ledger domain. And with their enchantments, evidently, what happened when all these guys came in and threw down their particular rods, they all had a rod in their hand. It tells us that. Evidently, they each produced a tanin from each wise man and sorcerer and magicians. Remember, I said there's at least six. So this and it says this Exodus seven twelve. for they cast down every man his rod and they became serpents. So <laughs> I never noticed that little detail before, but that floor must have been covered with serpents or crocodiles or whatever. I would want to get out of there, and Pharaoh, oh my goodness, he is really feeling puffy up, you know, puffed up, he he is feeling good about his gods, not only had they been able to duplicate what God's, God did through Aaron, but they even far outnumbered God's one creature, you know, he has one snake down there, and there, they have all, I don't know how many, but at least six, but He's feeling all great about himself. He has this false sense of supremacy and conquest. And just like that, it vanishes. As with his own eyes, he watches as God's serpent swallows up each and every one of their serpents. How did that happen? Actually, it's interesting because if you look at verse 12, Here's the exact words. It says, Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Now, some people say, you mean they turned back to rods and Aaron's rod swallowed their rods? I don't know. That's what the scripture says, doesn't it? But I don't know how a rod has a mouth. I would think that rod and serpent are synonymous here, but that's just guessing. Whatever happened, no sleight of hand, no ledger germane could do that. And they're all just like, whoa, what just happened? Now, perhaps the difference for the change in the Hebrew word for the Rod Tanin miracle that was just performed before Pharaoh, who represented Egypt, the whole world really, was intended to demonstrate that the Lord is the creator. Remember the first time that word is found in the Bible? It's as God's creation. It's the first living thing he ever created. And because he's the creator, he is also the master, of the entire universe. Now, Pharaoh himself never saw the change in the Hebrew words that were used uh, between Moses' miracle and Aaron's miracle, right? Because he never saw the Bible, hadn't been written yet. Um, But who would see that change in words? The Hebrew people. And all, like us, who have come to believe in the word of God and take the time to study, you know, read it and study it. We would see that change. And so when reading Moses' account of the Exodus, we are to always remember that Yahweh has dominion over Satan, represented by the nechash of Moses' rod, which he subdued by picking it up by its tail, God has dominion over Satan because of the fact that he is the creator. And that is represented by the tanin of Aaron's rod, which swallowed up all the taninim of the sorcerer's rods. The word tanin is also found in Psalm seventy-four thirteen, where it refers to dragons, dragons in the waters. And in now a dragon could be some kind of a huge reptile or a dinosaur back before the flood. You know, there were dinosaurs. But it's, it's called a dragon in the water. Ezekiel 29.3 is really interesting because there the word tanin actually describes Pharaoh of Egypt. It says it calls the Pharaoh king of Egypt the great dragon, the great tanin, That lieth in the midst of his rivers. Elsewhere in the scripture, it is used metaphorically to speak of kings or nations who oppress Israel, persecute Israel. We have a lot of taninum in our country today. When Aaron's tanin swallowed the Egyptians' taninum, Pharaoh was totally without excuse, to dismiss evidence that so strongly was presented that the god of the Hebrews was more powerful than Egypt's pantheon of gods and goddesses. I mean, that was pretty evident. Their snakes disappeared down the mouth of Aaron's rod. Egypt's priests had the view that swallowing not only demonstrated the destruction of the thing that was swallowed, that's pretty obvious. You know, if a frog gets swallowed by a snake, that's kind of the destruction of the frog. <laughs> but they also had this belief, the priests did, that the thing that swallowed the other thing acquired the power and the knowledge of the swallowed-up victim. So if I was to swallow up Terry, suddenly I would have all Terry's power and her knowledge, That would be great. So that's what they believed. Pharaoh's response to all this, and, and Pharaoh knew this. You know, all the Egyptians believed this. So Pharaoh's response was to resist, wasn't it? He resisted the evidence right in front of him, and consequently his heart became even further hardened. Now, from the Exodus 7 account of Aaron's rod serpent, Swallowing the rod serpents of Egypt's phony, baloney spiritual leaders. From this account, all the way to the end of the Exodus, when they have crossed the Red Sea, and the people are really, really happy because they're free, and Moses writes a song called the Song of Moses. It's in Exodus 15. And in that song, it describes the end of the great exodus. So Exodus 7 is the beginning with this miracle we've just been talking about. And the end is described in Exodus 15. And guess what Moses wrote? He talked about Egypt's army being swallowed up. That's exactly the words he uses by the waters of the Red Sea. So, f- first miracle to the last miracle, we have a picture prophecy of the Lord's humiliating defeat of Pharaoh and Egypt and the real enemy behind them, Satan. And the word that connects the first and the last events of the Exodus. The humiliation-defeating process of the Exodus, the word that connects the two, is swallowed. And that's in, uh, did I tell you, Exodus 15, verse 12. Now, another aspect of this prophetic picture concerns the rods. (laughs) Now, a rod was a symbol of authority and power and rulership. A rod or a scepter also symbolized the power of life or death, especially when it was in the hands of a king or a leader. Do you remember when Queen Esther went before King Ahasuerus, her husband, saying, if I perish, I perish? Why would she perish? If he didn't hold out the scepter to her, because she hadn't been invited, she came in on her own. If he hadn't held out the scepter, she would have been put to death. But he did so this it it symbolized the power of life and death now moses rod was a uh, was symbolic of a good shepherd. He had this kind of a rod, a staff, a shepherd's rod. It symbolized his good shepherd role over god 's sheep. Of course, it was also the weapon that he would use to drive off uh, coyotes or or snakes, you know, I got to thinking when when he threw that ro- staff down on the ground and it became a snake, he lost his weapon <laughs> to buy, kill that snake, didn't he? But this, this was also a weapon. Um, now, some believe that Moses and Aaron shared the same rod, that they just passed it back and forth between one another. Um, and you'll read a lot of commentaries that say that. We, we don't know for sure. It's confusing when you read it, but it usually says Aaron's rod or it says Moses' rod. Uh, but we do know, one thing we do know, is that Aaron's rod was placed into what? Anyone know? Very good. It was placed into the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when it budded? Okay, well, you're going to talk about that a little bit later in the lesson. But the Ark of the Covenant was only so big. It wasn't very big. So Aaron's rod could only be 3.75 feet tall, not even four feet tall. That's why I brought this one. It's about that big, Aaron's rod. Whereas a shepherd's staff was always much longer. So I would say that they were different. Aaron had a rod and Moses had a rod. Now, Aaron's rod identified him as the leader of the tribe of Levi. It also identified him now and from now on as Moses' prophet. Later, when it did bud, it identified him as the head spiritual representative of God for Israel because he was made the first, what, high Aaron became the first high priest so he was the head spiritual leader for all Israel and in truth because of that Aaron was also the supreme spiritual representative of God for the entire world (laughs) because Israel was the only nation to retain the knowledge of the true God and all of this additionally um, was prophesied when it was Aaron's rod as the spiritual representative of the entire world for God when his rod swallowed up Egypt's rods. That's another typology that was presented, and a prophecy typology. So all in all, the first miracle of the Exodus account was a prophetic presentation of the end of the beast, Pharaoh. And he was a beast of a man who greatly oppressed God's people, and he was a picture, a type, of all of the Antichrists of the world, including the final Antichrist with a capital A who is known as the beast out of the sea in Revelation. It was also this first miracle was a prophetic presentation of the eventual end of all the beasts who serve Satan, pictured by, you know, the magicians and the sorcerers, the spiritual authorities of Egypt. They represent the many false prophets of this world, including the final one who serves side by side with the beast out of the sea, the false prophet. And he is known as the beast out of the what? Earth, beast out of the earth. Pharaoh's end, he didn't know this, but his end was sealed that day, right then and there. When, that, when God's serpent swallowed up the other serpents, that was sealing his end. First, however, I mean, and it would be about six months, the plagues, they say, took about six months. But in six months, his kingdom would be taken from him by his own death. First, however, his kingdom was severely weakened when Egypt was devastated by 10 very damaging plagues. And then when Egypt lost her slave labor force, who was going to do the work? They lost all their slaves. And then when Egypt lost her entire army. Now Pharaoh, who wore on his forehead a crown with a serpent a cobra coming out of it. That was the crown. We could say that's kind of a mark of the beast and was even described by Ezekiel as the great dragon. Remember we just looked at that? The great dragon. He was a personification of the great red dragon who in Revelation 12 for years and years and years, the great red dragon stood waiting for the male child to be born out of the woman's womb. Who is the male child? Jesus, who is the woman in the womb? Not Mary, Israel. And a minute, well, he tried to prevent her from even coming, him from even coming, but the minute he was born, you know, the slaughter of the innocents, he wanted to devour the child. But since he was unsuccessful in that, he has continued his attack on the woman ever since. Why do you think there's so much anti-Semitism in the world? Connie's going to get mad at me because it got loud. i stand back. She says, <laughs> I'm going to wake up to babies. But you know why there is so much anti-Semitism in the world? It's all satanic. He's still after the woman who bore the, the male child. And so it yet continues to this day. Pharaoh is the symbol of Satan's ongoing opposition to God's people. The Lord's work of redemption not only includes the redemption of his people, but it includes as well the destruction of all the evil forces arrayed against his people and against him and, of course, his son. Now, besides being a prophetic picture This whole episode is also a spiritual lesson in picture form. It tells us not to disobey God, not to resist God. If you think you know more than God does, guess what? You're not very bright (laughs) because he knows a whole lot more than you. Do not underestimate God. As with his miracle of swallowing up the evil produced in Egypt, there is a day coming. When all evil things, all evil things will be swallowed up. Where? In the lake of fire. There was another incident in the scripture, and would you turn quickly to Numbers 16 and 17, that involved Aaron's rod, okay, other than God's use of it for the first three plague judgments. You know who brought the Nile to blood? The first three plague judgments were done by Aaron's rod. Did you know that? Not Moses's, Aaron's rod. In Numbers 16 and 17, we read the account. There was a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. This is when they're wandering in the wilderness, you know. There's a rebellion against them. Um, 250 leaders of Israel under the instigation of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. You might know about it. And they accused the brothers, Moses and Aaron, of taking on too much responsibility. Who made you to be the rulers over us? This is nepotism. You guys are brothers. We want some of the power. I mean, basically, that's what they did. Um, And they accused them of trying to lift themselves up when really what they were doing was trying to lift themselves up because they wanted to be priests and they were coveting the power that God gave to Moses and to Aaron. Well, their their rebellion ended with another case of being swallowed up. (laughs) What happened? The earth opened and they were all those involved in the rebellion were swallowed up. Look at numbers 16 verse 30 and again verse 32. You see those who rebelled against God's chosen leaders were gone in an instant. It is not wise <laughs> to be at war against God and his chosen people and leaders. Now, it was at that time that Moses received God's command to take all the rods of all the tribal leaders and write each man's name. You know, there was one leader for each of the 12 tribes, and were actually 13 when Levi was in there. So they were to inscribe their name on the rod, and then this God told Moses to collect them and put them in the tabernacle. And he said, I will show you who my chosen spiritual leader for the congregation is. So overnight, you know, the rods were all in the temple, and in the morning when they get up and they go and look, Whose rod had done something special? Aaron's rod. What had it done? It had (laughs) risen from the dead. It was nothing but a stick, and all of a sudden it had budded. It not only budded, it blossomed with blooms, and then even fruit, almonds. Aaron's rod, no doubt about it, was a type of christ christ was also raised from death and has brought forth much fruit in fact christ is even called in psalm 110:2 he is called the rod of god's strength now this is that's the verse that says the lord said unto my lord sit thou at my right hand david wrote that And the Jews always wondered, what does that verse mean? How can God say to God? Because it actually says, Yahweh said to Adonai. So they said, how can God speak to himself and say, sit at my own right hand? And they were puzzled about that, and they just kind of tried to skip over it. And they said, well, David, who was David's Lord? David didn't have any Lord except God. He calls him my Adonai. Anyway, it's very confusing, and they tried to avoid it, but Jesus had directly addressed it, of course, to the Pharisees when he came, and he explained it. And he told them how God could sit at his right hand because he said God the Father was speaking to God the Son. Duh. And that's why it was not blasphemous for him to claim to be the Messiah, Adonai. They all knew it was a messianic passage. They knew it spoke about the Messiah. The rod of God's strength was the Messiah. And so he says, no, it's not blasphemous for me to claim to be the Messiah and the son of God. It's not blasphemous to be the son of man and the son of God. It's not unscriptural. Look, this is what it's been saying all along. Um, And then, of course, it says that the rod of his strength would come out of Zion to rule over his enemies. The father was speaking of Christ. David's Adonai, David's Lord. He's the rod who will one day. Currently, where is he? sitting at the Father's right hand, but one day he is going to, just as it says in that psalm, he is going to rise up and he's going to rule out of Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Now, some have wondered why it was Aaron's rod, not Moses' rod, that was so special that it was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. We know this in Hebrews nine four. It was kept in there with the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and a golden pot of manna. Why Aaron's rod? Not Mo- Well, for one thing, Moses' rod wouldn't have fit. <laughs> but um, yes, they were all three, all three of those items were very strong Old Testament material types of Christ, pictures of Christ as the giver of the law, the stone tablets, the giver of life, the manna, and the giver of eternal life, resurrection life. Aaron's rod. That came to life. The stone tablets, which were written with God's finger, represent Christ as the Word of God. The golden pot of manna pictures him as the divine, golden, speaks of divine, bread of life. Didn't he say, I am the true bread of life that came out of heaven? Aaron's rod represents him in a number of ways as the resurrection, the rod of God's strength, the Messiah the rightful high priest of his people as the good serpent who has already defeated the evil serpent and one day will swallow him up forever in the lake of fire. Now one more and we'll be done. There is another good serpent in the scripture. Okay, now turn over to Numbers 21. another good serpent, besides the tanin of God's original creation in Genesis 1, and besides the tanin that God created out of Aaron's rod, there is the account of a good serpent found in Numbers 21, verses 6 to 9. Okay, this takes place at the end, the near end of Israel's wilderness journey. She has been walking around in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. and That was punishment for her lack of faith in God that she could conquer the Canaanites. By this time, Aaron is dead, and Moses is really old, and he is near to the time of his death. And what do the Israelites do? What were they famous at doing? Grumbling and murmuring. So they come against God and Moses, and their complaint is, lack of water, and their miserable dietary conditions. They said they were sick and tired of eating hot now Krispy Kreme donuts. (laughs) That's what I think of every time I eat one of those. Oh, it's like I say, this is manna (laughs) from heaven. They were tired of eating manna. Not only did they say, uh, our soul loatheth, This light bread, you know what that means? We hate the manna, but they also despise God's way. In verse 4, it says, The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The way. This is a, uh, in the spiritual picture of things, this is say, they're saying they hated the manna sent from heaven and they were extremely depressed and discouraged about having to follow the way of God. Who was leading them all the time? You know, God by pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. So, okay. God says, you want to see what life would be like without me? <laughs> he shows them. He sent them fiery serpents all over the place, and the venomous bites, what would it be like without God? Well, we've all been bitten by the fiery serpent, right? And the, when, the, when they bit, the venomous bite of those serpents killed many. It says in verse 6, you see, without the Lord, all would surely die, contrary to what the serpent said in the garden. Those who loathed Christ the true manna from heaven, and the one way to the promised land, those who loathe that will die. They will surely die. Eternal separation from God. And so the people are bitten, and they come running to Moses, their faithful good shepherd, and they admit their sin for the first time in all the 40 years. They really now have an a true, genuine repentance and willing confession. Um, and they say in Numbers twenty-one seven, we have sinned. And as he did so many times, what did Moses do? What does our high priest do? He interceded on their behalf. And so the Lord in his mercy told him to construct a great sign that would show the people his mercy. They deserve, They didn't deserve his mercy. They deserved judgment because the wages of sin is what? Death. But the irony of all this is that the symbol of his mercy <laughs> was a fiery serpent made of brass set up upon a pole, lifted up high so everybody could look up at it. The Lord then gave his redemption prescription. Everyone bitten by a fiery serpent, if if they hadn't died already, they uh, needed to merely look up at that brazen serpent and guess what? They would live. They would live. All they needed was enough faith in God's healing remedy to obey. It, it seemed, I mean, I'm sure the people thought, and they had discussions, you know, well, that sure is a crazy way to receive the free gift of eternal life. Couldn't he come up with a better idea? You know, um, it, and they would think it was crazy because it represented the very thing that brought death, a fiery serpent. However, those who believed God's word about the saving power of the good serpent if they believe God's word and in a, just a little bit of faith, they looked up at it. Guess what? They were saved. They were saved from death. What is interesting is that God did not remove the fiery serpents. Did he? Uh-huh. They're still here in the world today. He didn't remove the fiery serpents. We're all born with the bite of the serpent. We're all born in our sins. And they did continue to bite the people. But he mercifully had provided a way for deliverance from the fatal venom. Did he put up a statue of Buddha and uh, Muhammad and all the different gods and the Egyptian gods all over the place? Or did he provide one remedy, one way, one way? Strange as it was, It was the thing that brought pain and ultimate death that was also the one source to bring healing and life. At the same time, a serpent was both the source and the antidote of the poison. Well, that was weird. And for 1,500 years, the Jews thought that was weird. You know, they actually came to worship that serpent. Some say it was lifted up on Moses' staff. That's what he used to lift up the serpent. The serpent was brass, but this doesn't say what the pole was. That's just speculation. It's interesting to think about. We don't know what happened to Moses' rod. They thought that was really weird, that account in the wilderness. But 1,500 years later, the account of the brazen serpent in the wilderness was explained. By whom? The Lord Jesus himself. How could... The promised seed of the woman, the Savior, who was to fatally crush the head of the serpent, how could he claim to be portrayed in the Old Testament as a serpent? Kind of mysterious, isn't it? But that's exactly what he did one night, early in his ministry, three years before he was lifted up on a cross. And he told Nicodemus (laughs) these words. He said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3 14 and 15. He was predicting his crucifixion, that he would be lifted up. When Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, no such thing as crucifixion even existed, did it? Jesus was saying he would be lifted up as the brazen serpent was lifted up. So all who would look in faith at what he accomplished on the cross would live, have eternal life. And what is it that he did on the cross? He took the venomous fatal bite of the serpent in your place and in my place. The Lord Jesus was made an offering for our sin, which is represented by the serpent. The serpent represents sin. He became the curse of sin for us, represented by the serpent. You know, he was made sin, though he was not sinful. In scripture, brass symbolizes judgment. He took our judgment in our place. The pole, of course, pictured the cross. There is no judgment for sin for those in Christ. He is the good serpent who swallows up the bad serpent. And this truth was predicted in Exodus 7 with Aaron's rod serpent. And again in Numbers 21 by the brazen serpent. And better yet, this truth was settled. Those were pictures. But the fulfillment came by Jesus on the cross because of his willingness to become sin for us. Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so much depth that you give to us in your word. It is endless, endless, endless. Thank you for the spiritual lessons, and there are many of them, but ultimately, Sin cannot win and faith cannot fail. To believe in heaven is not to run away from life. It is to run toward it. Thank you for the truth that death is swallowed up in victory. For those of us who have had just that mustard seed of faith to look up upon you and believe what you did for us, that we will live forever in your presence, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And Lord, how we look forward to that day when all evil will truly be swallowed up forever and ever. Never again will sin raise its ugly head. We love you. I pray you will be with every wimp woman, Pray for every lady for the next two or three weeks until we meet again, Father, that you would put a hedge of protection around her and help her to share what she's learned today with someone else. Thank you again for this time together, for we do pray in that blessed, precious name of our good shepherd and our good serpent, Jesus Christ, amen.